I didn't hear any amens on that. <laughs> Is this on? Yep. Okay, turn it off then. <laughs> no, just kidding. So tonight we're in, oh, actually, uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, I have too many folders up here. Let me get the right one. And Sister Kim is going to come read that to us in just a minute. This sounds a little funny. Sound good out there? All right. Maybe it's just me. I'm funny tonight. But let's just pray and thank the Lord. What a time of just coming into his presence to worship. I don't know about you, but the stresses of the day melt away in the presence of God. Amen. And I, I need this, and I know you do too. And so, Father, we thank you tonight that we can come here together as brothers and sisters to Forget about all the things of the day that weigh us down and the stresses and the cares. And Lord, that you could just refresh us. And that's what we ask tonight. As we worship you, we ask for refreshing. And as we hear the word, I pray that the word would refresh us. Though it challenges us and though it stretches us, Father, I pray that just hearing the truth about uh, who this Jesus is that you sent for us and what a marvelous high priest he is, Lord, that we would be encouraged tonight to know that uh, he is the author and finisher of our faith, and we're safe in his hands. And so, Father, as we go into Hebrews 9 tonight, I pray that it would just stimulate a joy in us that the world couldn't take away. I thank you for that in advance, in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Sister Kim. Nice and loud. Hebrews chapter 9. Am I on? Yeah. Okay. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread that is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering, entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal freedom. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works mm. to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant 
in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it never is in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Amen. So Hebrews 9 continues here showing the supremacy of Christ, and that is one of the major themes in the book. As Christians, we wouldn't be Christians unless we thought Christ was it. Amen? You know, if there was another God that you could serve that was better, then we would serve that God. But we know that Christ is supreme in all things. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is the Son, the only begotten Son of God. There's no multiple gods. There's uh, God's office and there's 86 different gods. There's one God. We know that. And so Jesus is that high priest sent from God, the only begotten. Verse 1 of Hebrews 9 defines the components of the first covenant. Now the first covenant was brokered through Moses with the people that were delivered from Egypt, the the Hebrews, and it was the Mosaic Covenant, and it was based on the law. We know this, but it's a good reminder to understand when they talk about the first covenant and the these things that we're going to discuss in these next few verses here, that this had to do with Moses and the children of Israel and the law. And when you when you hear the law, you know, you get this idea of legalism, and you should, but the law is all about the Ten Commandments. And we know the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments haven't been abolished in the sense where we don't have to follow them anymore and we still call ourselves Christians, but we are under grace now, not under the law. Our salvation is not based on how we perform and keep commandments. 
Now, I know you've heard this lots of times, but we need to hear it over and over. Because the minute we walk out here, the devil comes to us and goes, you're not good enough. You're not doing it right. You're not, you're, you're not holy. You're, and he brings all these accusations against us so that we'll go back to doing works to try and please God when Jesus has already done that for us. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Salvation is a free gift, not earned by works, but it is received through faith when we believe who Jesus Christ is and we receive him as our own personal Lord and Savior. So these are the components of the first covenant, the law covenant, and they are uh, divine ordinances. Look what it says here. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of the divine service and the earthly sanctuary. They were God-given rules. The Ten Commandments weren't man-made. They were God-made. In fact, God burned them into the tablets and Moses came down the mountain with them. They, they were made by God. They were given by God. They were regulations. And, and God gave them the rules. He gave them the res regulations. They were patterns that the priests had to follow to the letter in order to please God. There are times in the Old Testament where priests did things out of order and God struck them dead immediately. I think at the time the ark was shaking and the, the one priest reached out his hand to steady the ark. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? And he fell down dead because he wasn't supposed to touch it. Well, it's going to fall. Let God take care of it. You see, it was rules and regulations and procedures and ceremonialism and all of these things. And if, if they stepped out of line, it was unpleasing to God. And, and, and there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of, you know, we got to do this just right. Now you say, well, why was God so rigid? Because it's a law covenant. And the law has, justice has to be blind. The law has to be applied equally and justly across. If I go to court and the judge likes me and he lets me off for murder, but you got a traffic ticket and you get 10 years in jail, is that justice? All the people who didn't say anything, I pray you get that judge. No, it has to be applied equally across the board. So God's no respecter of person. So, hey, if you break the law, then you're guilty and there's a punishment attached to it. That's why God was so rigid. The law is all about rigidity. It's all about legalism. It, it, it's about works. It's about performance. Grace is the complete opposite of that. So understand the old pattern, the old covenant, the law is the, the direct opposite of grace. Now, it says here that it was, what, an earthly sanctuary, uh, the divine ordinances or the ordinances of the divine service and an earthly sanctuary. Now, what are they talking about here? The tabernacle was an earthly replica of the tabernacle that was in heaven, okay? And if you remember when God instructed Moses how to make the tabernacle, he wasn't just, you know, making something for, you know, to house his presence and for the people to kind of, you know, uh, have relationship with him he was giving him very specific instructions about how to build a direct replica of the tabernacle that was in heaven now verses two through five run down the layout of the tabernacle i, I wish i had time to unpack this i've done full-length teachings on the tabernacle and it is fascinating although it has to do with the law each implement each part of the tabernacle has uh implications into the new testament covenants but the tabernacle was just this tent or building that was mobile at the time when they first made it and the priests did the majority of their work in one spot and there was a couple different chambers the outer courts the holy place the holy of holies 
Uh, if you're interested in this, you can get online, you can, you can Google it, and you'll get lots of great pictures. If you're visual, you know, it's really interesting to look at. You could read along with the text that's in the scripture and uh, see a lot of great things. But verses 2 through 5, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sh- sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which was the called the holiest of all or the holy of holies which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the gold pot that had manna Aaron's rod that budded the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat their wings came to the center of these which we cannot now speak in detail. So there's an unpacking of some of the implements that were in the tabernacle, this kind of mobile tent that traveled with the children of Israel here. The first uh, chamber that they went into uh, included the lampstand, which they had to keep you know, burning and going, the table of showbread, which was an offering to the Lord. Behind the second veil in the, the, you know, the holier place, uh, was the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant. That, now, if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is what they were looking for. You remember what happened when they opened it up? What a great scene. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and, and it tells us the things that are inside here. Look, the Ark of the Covenant had the golden pot of manna. What's the point? God's provision for them. When they were in the wilderness, the manna came from heaven every day. They ate it. So here's a golden pot of it, uh, you know, it representing God's supply and God's faithfulness to the people. And so, you know, th- that is tucked inside the covenant there. Then you have Aaron's rod that budded. Basically, you know, they, they had rods uh, in that society, walking sticks, shepherds had rods. What we're talking about is a walking stick. If you have a walking stick that continues to bud, that's a special one. I notice when they cut trees down, they stop sprouting leaves. Okay, what is that? Showing uh, God's miraculous provision, showing God's strength and power, uh, all of these things. There's a lot of implications here, but there's a pot of manna, Aaron's rod that buzzed, and then the tablets of the covenant. So literal Ten Commandments in there written with the finger of God. Now, above the ark was a golden the cherubim, and there was, uh, from depictions of the ark, you see two of them, and their wings meet in the middle over the mercy seat. Uh, there are a lot of implications there, but that's just a quick unpacking of the tabernacle. This was a replica of what was in heaven, and that's why God gave them very strict uh, orders on how to make it, uh, how to build it, uh, how to minister in it, uh, all the furniture. You know, Moses didn't just look and go, you know, this room could use a, a few chairs and a couch. No. You had to follow this, and all of these implements have implications. So uh, verses 6 through 10 show the limitations of the Levitical priesthood. These priests di- didn't have an easy job. <laughs> you know, they, they worked around the presence of God, so, you know, there was a danger factor <laughs> if they messed up, and uh, it was really strict, but they had limitations in verses 6 through 10. Uh, talk about that. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went in, the first part of the tabernacle performing their services. Verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins committed in ignorance. Uh, Let's take a look at some of this here. So there's 
uh, a rundown of how the tabernacle is laid out. Uh, the, the, high pre- the high priest had a function. The priest had a function. Most of the service they did, the priest maintaining, 99% of it was done in that outer area there, the holy place. And that's where they did their functions, made their offerings, and kept order in the house. Now, that's the bulk of what was done in the sanctuary place, not in the holy place. Verse 7 describes the once-a-year event that happened in the holy place where the high priest would go in to the holy of holies now this was a very serious and sober event and i'm sure that whoever was elected to be high priest is glad that it only happened once a year because it was very serious to go into the presence of god he had to go in there and advocate for the people uh to make sin offerings and that's what that's all about on you know that that atonement that he goes in there he does his high priestly duty it's once a year event And it's interesting that it says the high priest didn't go in not without blood. What did that mean? That the proper sacrifices, the appropriate animals had to be sacrificed and killed and their blood had to be used to cover the high priest so he wouldn't be consumed by the holy presence of God. You see, in the New Testament, we we just don't get how holy God is. We're like, oh, God, you know, he's my buddy. You know, he's my little rabbit's foot in the sky. Pray when I need something. He's the big G. He's my pal. Our God is an awesome God. He's a holy God, amen? We cry out, Abba, Father, but we shouldn't get so comfortable with him that we lose our reverence for him, amen? Reverence is a good thing. I was raised, you know, and going to the the churches where it was quiet, nobody talked, nobody laughed. It was like, you remember that? And reverence reverence is good. That was one good thing I learned as a young kid. If you didn't behave yourself, you know, you got pinched in the back of your arm or grandma hit you with something or you got punished. So reverence, amen? Good memories, good times. But the the high priest went in once a year. It was serious. He didn't go in without blood. The proper animals were sacrificed. They used to put, I've told you this before, they used to have uh, bells put on the tassels of his garment and a rope on his foot so they could see if he was still kicking in there and if he died. Because if he wasn't covered properly or he had sin that he hadn't confessed, he would die and they would drag him out with the rope. Why? Because if they didn't drag him out with the rope, whoever went in would be, I mean, it could be a mess. So high priest was an interesting job. It was serious and it was sober. Uh, He didn't go in without blood. The blood shed from animals covered two specific things. The high priest's own personal sins. This is why Jesus is far superior. He has no sins to cover. The high priest had to offer and be ritually cleansed and all kinds of procedure. I mean, it was a big deal. And the blood had to be offered for his own sins, for himself. And then it had to be offered for the sins that the people committed in ignorance. Isn't that an interesting thing there? Uh, That, you know, that there was an offering for his own sin, and he had it, and an offering for the people's sins committed in ignorance, verse 7 says. Let's just take a look at that for a second. It's sobering that God differentiates between sins committed in ignorance and sins committed in defiance. I want you to think about that for a second. When I do what's wrong, and I know it's wrong, but I do it anyway. Ugh, defiance. God, sometimes we see people in the world just sinning, and we see God extend grace to them, and we're like, what in the world? You know, he's being kinder to them than to us. To, to, you know, we know better. To whom much is given, much is required, Amen. 
So God treats those, you know, in ignorance. In, you know, the Gentiles were ignorant of the things of God. They were outcasts. And so God treats sins done in ignorance different than sins done in defiance. He has a greater measure of grace, even in the Old Testament law covenant. A willful defiance is the last thing we want to do when it comes to God. You're sitting in church, you're listening to the word, you've been around. I mean, it's just amazing to me, people uh, who sit under the word and they'll just go do things that they know are wrong. They'll get into a physical sexual relationship with people they're not married to. They move in together, you know, and, and, and you think, what in the world are you doing? That, that's open defiance to what you know is sin. That's a dangerous way to live. Help us, Lord. Verse 8 tells us the Holy Spirit made it very clear that the way into the Holy of Holies was not yet settled. So check this out here. The Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiest or the holy of holies was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So in the Old Testament, the way into the holy of holies was not clear. And we're going to look at that for a second here. What's that? What's that all about? Well, the fact is that Jesus, when he died on the cross and broke the power of sin, he made the way clear into the presence of God for us. Notice that the way wasn't made clear. Why? Because Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life had not yet come fulfilled his, his mission. Amen? This is why Jesus is the only way, because he is the way, and he made a way into the presence of God for us by destroying sin. Amen? So when he says the way wasn't made clear, it's because the way hadn't come yet and embraced the cross. Oh, man, I'm excited about that. I, I, I love the imagery here. I love the implications here. And I love the fact that Jesus made a way where there was no way. He gives us access to the holy presence of God. Now, the Old Testament priest that couldn't even touch the ark or go into the presence without being, you know, as the King James says, smote dead. <laughs> just, just killed, flat out killed. Now we can cry, Abba, Father, and come into the presence of God. Amen. What a privilege. What an honor. For us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about that. We're the tabernacle now that God abides in. Wow. Help us to understand these things and to be grateful for them, Lord. We are sealed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, making us living tabernacles. No longer it's a mobile tent in the garden. No longer it's the synagogue. No longer, you know, it's a building made with the hands of man. It, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the seed of God in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are the living tabernacles now. Verse 11, uh, well, let's see, verse 9 through 10 shows that the first covenant was a symbol of the better covenant to come. You know, it's, it's hard for us to understand that sometimes God doesn't seem in a rush to get things done because we are. And for God to make a covenant that lasts thousands of years before it gives way to the better covenant and say, well, that first covenant was just, you know, it, it was just a type and a shadow. It was just a promise of, of a better covenant to come. Seems like a long procedure, but who are we to question God? He knows exactly what he's doing, and this is what 
verse 9 and 10 show us that it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. So what is he saying? The law made nobody perfect. Uh, Works made nobody perfect. It was just a covering for sin. Adam and Eve sinned. They killed, you know, they they used leaves. God said leaves aren't even going to cut it for a temporary covenant. He killed animals. He covered them, and that was a temporary covering. Realize everything that was done in the law, everything that was done in the Old Testament did not solve the issue of sin. It only provided a temporary covering for it so that people could fellowship with God in a temporary way without being annihilated by the holiness of his presence. Wow. Our God is an awesome God. And so the first covenant was all about symbolism and ritual. It was steeped in ceremonialism. Uh, It regarded the outward things of food and drink, you know, and, and verse 10 talks about concerning only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So he's saying all this ceremonialism, all this ritual, the ritual represented something better that was coming, that, you know, when they had to be ritually cleansed and washed, now we're going to be literally cleansed and washed by the blood of the Lamb, amen? When their sins had to just be temporarily covered so that God could deal with the the sinfulness, our sins are going to be completely washed away as far as the east is from the west that God remembers them no more. Wow. (laughs) Hebrews is trying to prove to that Jewish mindset that is still stuck in in the Mosaic law covenant that there's a better covenant and Jesus far exceeds the old. He's superior in every way. Please, it's almost as if the writer is saying, please just let go of the old. The new is so much better. Do you ever think about some of the old stuff we used to use and how we were attached to it? Then when we got the new thing, I mean, how much better it was? Come on, don't look at me like like you never. You probably got the newest phone in your pocket. Most of the phones today cost more than my first car. All of them cost more than my first car. So the new and the better, the new and the better, and the world wants the new and the better, and, and these people were stuck in the old, and, and the writer's saying there's new and there's better. Uh, Jesus made a way where there was no way. He made the way clear into the Holy of Holies so that you can have fellowship with God. You know, the old covenant was external. It was outward. It was uh, symbolism and washings. The new covenant is internal. It's a heart covenant. We're not saved by the external. We're not uh, sanctified by the external. It's not like we have to look like a Christian. We actually have to be converted and become a Christian. It's inward. It's not external. It's internal. Internal is the matter of the heart. These are heart things. And we're sealed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives in our hearts, amen. We say things like that all the time, uh, signifying the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, making us living tabernacles. Verse 11 through 15 shows the supremacy of Christ over the old system. Again, driving the point home. 11, Jesus' high priesthood showed good things to come. And that's what he's trying to say. The old has passed away. The, the better covenant has come. Why does Jesus' <laughs> priesthood show good things to come? Because he's superior to every flawed man. He's above creation. His priesthood and the tabernacle he ministered to was not made with man's hands. It was heaven made. Let's take a look at 11 here. But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come. 
he, he came as a high priest of good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with the hands that is not of creation. So God made is always better than man made. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So there, I want you to know it says once for all, and I want you to note that he, he went in with his own blood. His blood is far superior than the blood of bulls and goats and calves and the ashes of heifers, as it says here. Those things were temporary. Compared to Jesus' blood, they're worthless. Nothing compares to the blood of Jesus. I've said it before when we take communion, the most powerful substance known to man is the blood of Jesus. It's the only thing that can address the issue of sin and totally wash us clean from the effects and consequences of it. What is more powerful than the blood of Jesus? Nothing. Why? Because what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, I could have wealth, and I could have wisdom, and I could have intellect, and I can have degrees, and I can be esteemed of men and still lose your soul? All that the world says is powerful fades in comparison to the blood of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats and calves and the ashes of heifers, that was for a time that's been passed. The shedding of Jesus' own blood allowed him into the presence of the Father, and so he is the better high priest. Verse 14 mentions the, that Jesus' blood was an offering without spot. Let's just take a look at that. Uh, verse 14 is interesting, and there to the Jewish mind, they get this. Gentiles, we need a little explanation. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what's he talking about there without spot? Well, when they offered animals for sacrifice in the Old Testament, they had to give an unblemished animal. You know, and God was mad at the people on several occasions when they would give him the, the, not the choice animal that he required for sacrifice, but they would give him the, the, the ones with the broken legs or the ones with the birth defects or the ones that were torn. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that there were times where God was like, you know, you, you defiled me in these offerings here. You're giving me your junk. You're giving me your leftovers and not your best. Jesus was the best of the best. He was an offering without spot, without blemish, amen? And that's why his sacrifice once and for all, was worthy to deal with the sin issue forever and eternity. So Jesus is that lamb without spot or blemish. He's not sick, deformed, torn, or blemished. He was acceptable. He's spotless and unmarked. And that's what God required of the animals for sacrifice. Jesus met every aspect of the requirements of the law. He was far superior to it, and his offering was more excellent to the point where it had to be done just once. Even a perfect, unblemished animal could only cover sin for a little while. And then when you sinned again, you needed to kill another animal. It was tough to be an animal in the Old Testament. I, think they had a, I don't know if they had a lot of pets back then. Where's your dog? I sinned. So thank God for Jesus. Amen? His blood offered unblemished, unspotted. The perfect sacrifice. Cleanse, and what does it do? It can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's a powerful statement there. You know why? Because the blood of animals didn't have the power to cleanse one's conscience. 
So even, because why? It was a temporary covering. It didn't really satisfy the, the cost of sin. It was just a temporary covering. It was just an animal. So the person was forgiven and they were ritually cleansed and they were technically absolved. But you know what? They still dealt with the conviction and the burden of their sin. Think about that. It, was, it wasn't easy to live in the Old Testament. Even in death, the Old Testament saints that were righteous in God's estimation didn't go to heaven, didn't go to the presence of God. They went to Abraham's bosom. Why? Because the consequences of their sin, though covered through ritual, were still in effect. And their consciences weren't cleared. Could you imagine having to bear the weight of every sin you committed on your conscience without being completely free of it? Yet I mentioned when Jesus deals with our sin, when we confess to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So it's gone. It's as far as the east is from the west. God doesn't remember it anymore. And our consciences can finally be cleared. What an awesome high priest we have. <laughs> He's far superior to the old system, to the old priesthood, to the old sacrifices. What an amazing high priest we have that our consciences can be cleared from dead works. And that's a powerful thing there. And we are free then, what? To serve the living God. What a beautiful... I encourage you to, to meditate on verse 14. If the enemy likes to rehearse your past failures and make you feel like you're not forgiven or tell you, you know, you, you've crossed the line, meditate on 14 and realize that, you know, you're free and you're forgiven and, and God doesn't remember anymore. Hey, God, remember that time I sinned? What are you talking about? I don't remember. I forgive that. It's under the blood. You know, God lets it go. We've got to let it go. So what? We can have a clear conscience. So what? We can serve the living God. We're free. We're forgiven. We're God's children. We can serve him with joy and pleasure. Amen? We don't have to walk around convicted and beat up and like a whipped dog and, oh, I'm just so horrible and, man, I don't want to get close to God. I might get consumed in his presence. I hear people say, oh, if I came to church, the roof would fall in. Well, I came to church, lightning would hit me. We got insurance. Come on and let's go for it. You know, what Christ has done is just, it's amazing here. The supremacy of uh, the new over the old and uh, the blood of Jesus dealing with all of these things. Our consciences are clear. We're free to serve God. Verse 15 to me is breathtaking. Listen to this. And for this reason, he's the mediator. Oh, I love that. He's our advocate. He brokers uh, restoration with the Father for us. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So there again, Christ being our advocate, being our mediator. That's powerful stuff there. Listen to all of what 15 is saying. Jesus is our mediator. He advocates for us. How? He brokered peace with the Father for us with his own blood. He's also our redeemer. Look what it says here. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. So he brokered peace and then he redeemed us. Every one of us that comes to him and trusts him as Savior and Lord, now he redeems us. What does that mean? We were lost, but now we're found. Something that's redeemed has to be bought back at a price. Jesus paid the price for my soul, for your soul, and for the souls of whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. That's good news, amen? He's our mediator. He's our redeemer. 
he died in our place. Uh, you know, that substitutionary sacrifice, that vicarious offering that he made for us there. Uh, a powerful thing. And he gives us eternal life as an inheritance. Look at that. To those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So, you know, there's an inheritance for us and salvation is part of it. Heaven's going to be our eternal home. We're going to be in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus for eternity. How is that all possible? I'm just a sinner who needs grace every day. It's all possible because he advocated for me. He mediated for me. He redeemed me. He saved me by his blood. I'm on my way to heaven. You're on your way to heaven. Come on, life's problems get really small when we begin to think like that, amen? Verse 16 and 17 explain why Jesus' death was necessary. And, and Jesus had to die, and he knew he had to die. You remember when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way, God, if you got a plan B, Father, tell it to me now. I don't relish the thought of enduring the cross and being separated from you, but I'll do it if it's your will and it's the only way. And it was the only way. He, it was necessary for him to die because his death empowered the new covenant. His blood empowered the new covenant. Look at 16 and 17. There's some, there's some powerful things in here. We talk about uh, the testament. Listen to this. For where there is a testament, uh, think of last will and testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the tester. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the tester lives. Okay, so let's just take a look at that. I told you, think last will and testament when it says that word testament or, and the tester would be the person who leaves the will. So the point is made that a will or a testament only kicks in after death. You know that when someone dies, that you look at their will and you see, you know, where you're in it and what they left to you, and that's the way it works. But when they're still alive, you don't get to split up their stuff. Hello? I know some of our kids would like to do that now. Dad, hand it over. Listen, when, when you die, your will kicks in, the last will and testament. And it's the thing here, that Jesus' will and, and the authority of what he is giving us as an inheritance, even his blood, couldn't be kicked in until he actually died and spilled his blood so that it could be shed for us, amen? Look, if Jesus didn't die, we're all lost in our sin. We're still under the law. We're not headed for heaven, and it, it, today is going to be a rough day. But because he died, and he had to die for his blood to be shed, you know, without that blood being shed, we're still under the law. The law was the best deal going. The Mosaic Covenant was the best deal going before the shed blood of Christ. Uh, the Gentiles had nothing. They had no way into the presence of God. Just cannon fodder. They would be born, die, and go to hell. Wow. Think about that. Uh, what a great time to be alive where redemption is available. Verse 18 through 22 reminds us that both the new and the old covenant were, in fact, blood covenants. And uh, let's just take a look at 18 through 22. Therefore... Not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So, yeah, it was the blood of animals. 19 says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. With what? With blood. Saying, This is the blood 
of the covenant which God has commanded you. So the old covenant had blood involved. The new covenant has blood involved. Why do both covenants involve blood? Uh, you know, most people are a little freaked out by the blood. I mean, if you came to church and every time you came here, I took a, you know, a thing of hyssop and sprinkled blood on you, we might cut down our attendance. Well, every covenant has to deal with blood. Here's why. Because both of those covenants dealt with sin. They were sin covenants. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Get it? It had to be blood. And so without blood, you know, sin is not dealt with. They were blood covenants that dealt with sin. The old was much less potent than the new. Why? Because it was built on old promises. It was built on uh, the priestly service. It was built on things that you know, were just a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound, but Jesus heals us from sin completely in, inside and out. And so the shedding of the blood is important. It's what gives us the forgiveness of sin. Verse 23 and 28 reveal, uh, they revel in the greatness and superiority of, of Jesus' sacrifice. And you know, Jesus gets to take a victory lap, amen, and his people should rejoice too in what he's done. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands. He didn't go into Moses' tabernacle, no. Which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So Jesus didn't go in the man-made thing. He didn't do it the man-made way. He went into the heavenly place, and he's from heaven, and his... Uh, perfect sacrifice was far above any sacrifice the priests could all offer. So what I want you to know about all of this stuff is that, you know, Jesus' blood was offered one time, and it's one and done, and the power of his blood stands forever. Don't be afraid out there, oh, man, I'm afraid that the blood of Jesus is going to run out, and I'm going to be stuck in my sins. Nope. He's dealt with sin for eternity his blood will stand forever. There's absolutely no need to be for Jesus to be sacrificed over and over again. Let me just read you these last verses here. Uh, so let's go to 25. Not that he should offer himself often. What, what does that mean? Every, Jesus got to die every month. He's got to die every time we sin. He's, he's got to die every 10 years. No, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place. So not even once a year every year without the blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So it's one and done. It's not often. It's not over and over again. I'm going to show you why I'm making this point. I'm going to read verse 27 and 28 and then make my final points. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once, say once, to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So uh, this whole idea of Jesus offered himself once, it's one and done. He doesn't have to do it over and over again. And making a point here that's kind of relevant to us, there's absolutely no reason for Jesus to die over and over again. Why? Because it is finished. Okay, now here's why I say all this. Many of us were brought up in churches where the theology taught that, you know, there was a, a perpetual sacrifice. Catholic theology calls 
Jesus' death, not a one and done sacrifice, but it's a, a perpetual sacrifice. What does that mean? That means he dies over and over again. That's why they, they would say at the church when I was a kid, this is literally the body and blood of Jesus. Do you remember that? Anyone grew up like that? And it would scare us as kids. We're like, we're eating but, but Jesus' body. And Jesus said, do this and remember me. But what? They were saying, no, Jesus has to be offered over and over again. So this is literally the body and blood of Christ. And that's a heresy, and it's not true, and it's not scriptural. Jesus died once for all. It is finished. He's done. He doesn't have to offer himself over and over again, as it says here. That whole idea of perpetual sacrifice is a heresy that, you know, it, it literally puts people in fear that, you know, if they don't receive communion and they don't get absolution, and if they don't go to confession and they die in their sins, they're going to go to hell for eternity. Come on. That's not scriptural at all. If you're born again, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if your name's in the Lamb's book of life, if you've partaken of Jesus Christ and you're covered by his blood, you're saved, amen? amen? You don't have to play Russian roulette with your soul. Jesus doesn't have to die over and over again. It's not the literal body and blood. We're not cannibals. We're not drinking his blood and eating his flesh. All the superstition and all, the, all that stuff that comes from Babylonian paganism, it's still pre prevalent in our society, and we've got to get back to this. It's appointed once unto man to die, then the judgment, amen? If you're saved, you're saved. If you're lost, you're lost, but you can be found because of the blood of the Lamb. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this book and for the study and for the gems that you've tucked in here. And I know your word is alive and it's living. And though we dig into it as deep as we can, we know we're still scratching the surface. So Holy Spirit, continue to reveal to us truths here, but help us to revel in the fact that you are our high priest. You've brokered salvation for us. You're our advocate. You're our mediator. You offer eternal life to us as an inheritance. Your death was necessary so that your blood could be shed so that you could break the power of sin that we could come into the Holy of Holies and have fellowship with the Father. Thank you so much, Jesus, for doing for us what only you could do. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise. Amen. So God willing, we'll do the next chapter next week. If Jesus comes to get us, we can have him teach it to us in heaven.